Monrovia. From our anchorage behind the massive stone breakwater, we saw the proud Liberian capital shimmering that evening as the sun went down behind us. This was our ship's port of registry, and as such must have had special significance to each and every one of us aboard her. It appeared to be a busy little place, but no port of New York. A sultry breeze came off the land, which is no surprise considering our latitude. Little reed dinghies vied with old red tugboats in a natty little competition for our attention. I thought perhaps the little brown boys aboard these boats would scuba for shiny coins and indeed threw quite a tidy sum of Italian lira into the wash. But this was just all so much foolish generosity, for later I was told the water be too deep and murky for diving. The captain told me he had been in radio contact with a local dry docker, for, apparently, our vessel was in need of some repair. Somehow, seawater was leaking into one of the forward holds, even though our ship was double-hulled in sheets of steel. I had not seen the leak myself, as it was below the waterline where cargo and crew were kept. The captain said one of his men had awakened soaked in salt water, an experience which had left him quite shaken, and the superstitious crew itself on pens and needles. Our hatches had been battened and bulkhead sealed, so we were in no immediate danger. The captain further said that speedy and skillful repair was a key to success on the modern ocean. The old adage about stitches and nines came to my mind as I decided that there was no time like the present to fix it up. Not that I had that much influence with the captain or had any real say in this business. I was not there in a decision-making capacity. The sea was calm and we made no contact with the natives that night. I woke the next morning with the feeling I had escaped some cruel and unusual fate. It must have been something in my dreams which so harrowed me. Probably some freakish combination of tribal drums and nautical bells. What a shame to have reached my age and still not have one's nights to oneself, I thought, to have come this far and to find, in fact, there is an odor to one's toe. After my customary breakfast, I was informed by Fredo, our purser, of an impending visit to the city. We had been granted a special dispensation by the chief of customs to pass the entire day ashore as a body. I thought at the time it had been granted as a favor to our captain, but have since discovered it to have been the first of many bribes paid by Cayman to have his way in the third world. As soon as I reached the captain's quarters, I found we were to go ashore immediately in a special launch chartered for this occasion. A gaggle of us gathered amidships and waited in the rising sun while the launch came about and lines were belayed. Then, with happy shouts of, All ashore! we scrambled down a catwalk into a small native moto boat, which ferried us to the shores of the dark continent. On the docks, huge, fat women, strangely postured and strangely gaited, moved with baskets of fruit and nuts balanced on their heads. Stevedores chanted powerful pagan work songs as they unloaded the steaming holds of huge black freighters. 
At first we clustered on the quay like clumsy birds, but then we crossed the St. Paul and headed for the center of town. Ashman Boulevard is quite a handsome thoroughfare. We could see the Nimba Mountains in the distance as we climbed up the slight incline toward the beautiful antebellum city hall. The men you see on the streets here are very handsome. They remind me so of the great dark-skinned actors we have in our own cinema back home. We moved for a while as a group. Quite a spectacle, I'm afraid. The natives gawked as if we were naked. <laughs> Children giggled and hid behind their mama's skirts. Then, as a body, we all stopped and stood on the street corner under the hot African sun as if frozen in some foreign frame of mind. The captain, who had been tailing along behind us, excused himself at this point for a rendezvous with the dry docker. I, with several others of us in tow, headed straight for the nearest movie theater. I had correctly diagnosed our problem as one of orientation, and I find the cinema a specific when it comes to cases of incipient culture shock. We hurried up Ashman, took a ride on Firestone, and there found the Lowe's Luxor, a grand old film palace of the Golden Age. What a hangover. They were showing propaganda movies that afternoon with mixed casts of Europeans and Africans. What a relief to get in out of the blinding sunlight. And it was air-conditioned. Both films were in English, which is the official language here. What a stroke of luck. The first film was called Smoke Scene and starred a local man called John Boxer and a French girl named Josette Jacqueline, a fetching little minx. They walked about town in an openly miscegenous relationship until shot from ambush by a misguided boar up from the south. Many wept openly, but I believe in saving my tears for physiologic necessities such as dust on the iris. Whatever could they have had in mind when they made this one? The other film was called Camera Land and featured tourists who come to Africa to hunt two American marriages, young and mixed. I can't believe they ever agreed to do something so freighted with problem. Needless to say, it made no sense whatsoever. But the sheer art of that is not insignificant. Often I think it is the art of propaganda herself, her muse, her ugly and phlegmatic muse. But jump into it they did, and I was embarrassed from the word go. They meet in the deepest, darkest jungle, and after a spate of honest talk, start right in swapping partners and tasting the dainties of intraracial delight. Of course, their relationships are purely physical to begin with, but later descend to love and guilt and hypocrisy. The softcore scenes are mildly interesting if you go that way, but I do find such phrases as dark sausage, brown jug, and blonde roots totally gratuitous and unnecessary, not to speak of tasteless. The two whites stay in a hotel room to fornicate in extremely painful and self-conscious positions, whereas the others do it quickly in the most inexplicable locale, for instance, in a public park behind a tree. Sprinkled into this kettle of adventure are interminable conversations, such as cinematic shortcut. In order to conform to the conventional morality of the town, the players would ceremoniously recouple and meet to eat in the hotel dining room. 
It seems the black male was socialist and the white boy venture capitalist. The black girl was amoral and cunning, whereas the white was a slave to her passions. Can you believe it? John's wife, Joni, would introduce a random element into the table talk, and then Mara, Black Bob's beautiful blonde bedmate, would complain of a Latin buzz. Then the two males, John and Bob, would wander off into town for their perfectly tedious verbal intercourse. They were interviews, really, with the black expounding a theory of historical inevitability while the white spouting something which he eventually calls a system of technically precise good fortune. It was really quite droll at times. I have no idea what the people behind this film had in mind when they put the whole thing together. But like most other projects in showbiz, it probably had occur some detrimental sexual intrigue. Brock Compton, a perfectly obnoxious fellow traveler from Long Island who was bald as a bowling ball and covered in herringbone, suddenly began shouting at the top of his lungs, What do they think they're doing? Who do they think they are? I swear he must have crawled up a tie line in Bremerhaven. Just to be classed with that sort gives me dropsy. A real entertainment junkie, it turns out came and leaned over and stage-whispered, Mr. Macy and Mr. Gimble. Everyone giggled until we were all quite silly for a hundred different reasons. And it was too much noise. All the real patrons wanted was more skin on the screen. Nanette sat next to me and repeatedly rubbed her knee against my thigh. I could have sworn she did it on purpose. It was most distracting. Eventually, they go on safari... Mara begins to complain of her love dandy's brutal behavior against a background of growling lionry. Joni bemoans chronic innocence and callow lack of interest on the part of John, who needed time between sessions. Modern scriptwriters just don't understand the function of fear in everyday sexuality. I thought this would be the perfect spot to inject some totally brave female hormone into the flick some fantasy skirt to skirt. But apparently the producer thought otherwise. Even when the males walked off all alone into the bush with their guns, the women merely sat about the campfire drinking herb tea and bitching softly. Maybe there's some taboo. Well, then, meanwhile, out in the bush, push comes to shove and they are charged by a male hippopotamus, the African water horse. Bob is blindsided and dies in disbelief. John straggles back into camp with a bent barrel and tells a story so shaggy he becomes immediately and incontrovertibly suspect. Neither Mara nor Joni seem to care in the least. Perhaps this is the seed of a real relationship. We leave them driving away with the crumpled black body on the roof rack to seek some sort of modern justice and understanding in the post-colonial city to deal with the law and the assurance companies. So much for realism. They also showed a short subject called The Complete Canine, which I don't remember. We ate an early dinner in the Chinese restaurant just across the street. The service was good but abrupt and the food adequate, though too highly dosed with meat tenderizer. After dinner, we went to a place, a brown brick structure stuccoed over with ochre plaster. This was called a transit hall, where we were to await transportation back to the ferry. 
We were served mocha coffee in small earthenware cups by a group of young boys in khaki shorts. We sat on rough wooden benches just outside the door. The boys then stood behind us ready to serve our thirst. The landscape was flat and dusty, a few plane trees the only relief. There were the mountains in the distance, of course, and the jungle in the valleys. But this plateau was flat and dusty from the footpad of people. Yet there stood in front of the transit hall five enormous rocks of some smooth, hard mineral substance. They were transported there from, of all places, Zanzibar. They might, in fact, have been meteorite. We were told they were there, transported by a local tribal leader quite popular with the people, quite recently killed by the government police. The boys seemed quite upset, and there came tears into their eyes, the eyes of several of those more sensitive among them, as they told this story in a strangely shared sing-song shanty, staccato and upbeat. They spoke briefly of a scheme, a plot, something devilish to make him killable. That's the term they used. I meant to question the boys further, but we were rapidly herded onto a taxi bus for a bumpy and dusty ride back to the shuttle skiff. This sad story was touchingly told by these boys. They were Mandingo boys, Muslims. They looked like good boys. Their parents had worked for peanuts on the Firestone Plantation, a million acres of good rubber jungle. They lived on a simple diet of rice, cassava, yams, and okra, chichi beans, and ground nuts. Ah, oh, sure, it's easy to see how different we are. But isn't it better to stress the underlying unity, our common quest for happiness, even if these boys do turn saboteur? I'll go along with natural disaster, but many of our troubles are man-made, created by our own ignorance, greed, and irresponsible action. I may not know how to fight it, but I do know there is a direct confrontation with the universality of our predicament waiting for us somewhere down the pike. These boys embodied, it seems to me, the noblest human qualities of honesty, sincerity, and good heart. These simple virtues will never result from money or be produced by machines. Only the mind itself can produce these attitudes. This mental development is not easy, nor can it be produced quickly. It requires brave and consistent adherence to truth even in the midst of dishonesty and competitive aggression. They must have come from loving homes. When we recognize the basic goodness in the outlook these boys shared, a true sense of compassion becomes possible, and eventually a natural, non-commercial reality presents herself. On board the skiff, Cayman made his way to my side, where I huddled beneath the helmsman's rudder. He moved alongside a rower and said, Look, forget the black guy and the white guy. Then say the Chinese girls or Egyptians or Lebanese or anything, but keep the gunshot. So now the story is there's two leathernecks and an army guy. Still bar boys, but crack soldiers, sitting in a nightclub with two new babes. Big tits, wide hips, real grooves. Bang, the gun goes off, the marines jump up on top of the table, the army guy hits the deck. And so now the punchline goes, So why'd the G.I. go low? He paused for a moment to assess my reaction. Well, you got none from me, I assure you. And then he said somewhat wistfully, Dive under the table? Is that better? Never mind, I guess you'd have to write it out. No one would ever do that. Sometimes I think the pathetic old gentleman was trying, in his own twisted way, to communicate with me. But I doubt it. 
Perhaps my forced smile was a trifle too warm and understanding, for the next thing I knew he was telling me how the buffalo still ruled the great Midwestern prairie, though they were stiffer now with joint disease. Hundreds will die in the harsh winter. He told me they were no longer ran in herds, they were mostly solitaires living in wood. Can you imagine? He said they lived in wood-lined burrows and watched the news on TV. Then his little wife came up out of the dark and blathered how fish had crawled up out of the Atlantic, up on our pilgrim shores, those selfsame hordes of virgin cod our forefathers saw and beat to death with sticks when first they crossed the great water which separated our country from civilized life. She went on about the violent life of birds and the brand new crop on Peter Cooper's New Amsterdam farm, how a fat woman can imitate a mailbox. She said she was attempting some point of absolute immutability. My, they were strange. I had had no idea they were quite so loony, and they were impossible to escape once they began in earnest. I experienced an attack of violent nausea and vomited my dinner off the stern of the skiff into the sea-green water. The helmsman, a handsome older man, looked askance, but the Cayman gave over their flotsamous gab in favor of the more immediate comfort of a cold compress, a snatch of Nanette's slip torn from under her skirt, and applied to my brow. As it turned out, my skiffboard discomfiture signaled some graver illness, bespoke as well by my ghostly color and shriveling flesh. And I practically lost consciousness, falling back into Nanette Cayman's lap and listening to the regular cadence of the rower's labor, the regular dip, pull, lift, and skim of their oars in the water. I meant to ask why we were not motorized, but could hardly lift my head to inquire. I assume it was to save a few piddling jugs of gasoline. Several of the brawny rowers gingerly hoisted me aboard when finally we reached our ship. In a great to-do of whispers and shouts, I was taken to my stateroom on a makeshift pallet. There Nanette stripped me of my clothing and bathed me in cool water until I fell off into a fitful sleep. I was raving, as she told me later, about all sorts of animals. A common subject in dreams about chickens, pigs, and snakes, and long quarters of incarcerated females, criminally insane. I remember her still, her smell, her touch, her presence, just as dawn was breaking in, whispering into my ear, and running a cool terry about my torso. Perhaps in that long night of fever and vomiting I gave her some window into the nightmare which haunts me, the charnel house of my private knowledge where the very tissues of my physical beings struggled to survive. She sang a little snatch of song in my ear, and then I fell off into a somewhat more peaceful sleep. I awoke the next day trying to find the words by which to thank her. And for what, I asked myself. The sad truth of the matter was that I was a tortured poor soul on the very brink of instability, and there is nothing more comforting than a cool rag for the near mad. Oh, I don't worry about going crazy any more. I know I'd remember enough to make other arrangements. But images of my previous life, my wild youth as an unqualified wastrel, innumerable imagined injustices and presumed slights coursed through my tattered ragtag brain like a liquid formed from mustard seeds. What fools we mortals be, I thought. 
Perhaps she had noticed some flaw in my form during our enforced intimacy, some small blotch in my makeup which she might inadvertently blow up into malicious gossip. I am less than perfect, after all. I felt compelled, within reason, and as an intelligent being, to explain everything. Even Snips glimpsed in transpiration to any other such intelligent being who should happen to perceive them, if only to prevent misunderstanding. Beyond that, I felt perfectly covered, and envisioned no special effort of dissimulation vis-à-vis Nanette. The very notion she might have the goods on me was the furthest thing from my mind. After breakfasting as usual and seeking out my accustomed meeting with the captain, and having found him to be otherwise occupied with what repairs were possible to our ship, I searched for Nanette, but found she had already gone ashore with Cayman to procure woven baskets or whatever other native curios she and he could locate. They were avid consumers. No event of moment went by without some memorial purchase. No, I don't think of my indisposition as representing in any manner the very first signs of a telltale shipboard relationship. It is just that this sudden, uncustomary sequence of events jarred my frazzled equilibrium and left me in a terrible state. I retired directly to my room, where I whiled away her hours ashore, smoking and staring at my porthole. But then, suddenly, my teeth would clench and my hands would convulsively clutch at the bed coverings. I was terrified. I felt an innocent though deadly force of nature was seeking vengeance on me for some imagined crime, some human misstep, something crazy escaped from the fate of my friends back in the States, from Wynwood, seen of all those terrible things which shall forever go unmentioned. I had become quite distracted from my thoughts of the tale written in smoke by the rigors of travel in such droll company, but now it returned with savage vigor. Such, then, is the power of sufficient metaphor to hold you and mold you and ultimately do you down and treat you unfairly. It's amazing the ramifications aren't more extensive and profound. But then when you think about it, perhaps they are. <laughs>